Let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23, where we can find the last words of our brother David. I read to you earlier this evening that heaven was opened to our brother John, and he saw in the temple of God the ark of his testament. We're going to read a little bit about that testament. Here's how a man after God's own heart dies. Here's the kind of confidence that a man who truly knows the Lord is able to face death with. I want to read to you the first seven verses of 2 Samuel 23. Now these be the last words of David. David the son of Jesse said, and the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel, said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation, and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. But the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. Amen and amen. amen. These are the last words of David. David is one of the most admired characters in all the Bible, and for good reason. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a man that worshipped God like no other that we can read about in the Bible because so much printed page is given to the Psalms and the worship of David, and so much, many details are given to us of his life. But where was his confidence at death? I want you to see it right here in these words. He was a man after God's own heart, and Jesus is called the son of David. Throughout the New Testament, we read that Joseph, being of the house of David, went to pay taxes in a little town called Bethlehem. One thousand years later, where David had been, where David had been born, it was the city of David. He went to that place. And we come all the way to the last chapter of the Bible, and the Lord Jesus Christ speaks and says, I am the root and the offspring of David. And there's a lot in that, brethren, because that means he has the throne of David forever. He's our king, and he's our Lord and our Savior. To those who love Jesus of Nazareth, I want to show that he is the son of David, and he sits on David's throne and reigns as king of kings and lord of lords. And he is all our salvation and all our desire. The Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. David only saw darkly what we see clearly. 
David never had the Lord's Supper. We're going to have the Lord's Supper and remember David's Lord, who was David's son, right here at this table. He never had this privilege. He never got to live on this side of the cross and see it in all of its details. The Spirit of the Lord spake by him, and he wrote Psalm 22, where we read the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And know that that's a prophecy of Christ on the cross. But David never got to have the Lord's Supper. We see better than he saw. But he's in heaven now, and he sees better than we see. And let's all rejoice together, because we're going to be together soon. And this is how he died. The first verse. Now these be the last words of David. We aren't given the last words of very many men, but the last words of famous men are usually of great value to men because famous men have accomplished great things in their lives and they've seen much, and so when they're on their deathbed, they speak of those great things. Usually a man's greatest wisdom comes in the last few days or weeks or hours of his life because he sees things more clearly about the vanity of our existence here in this world than at any other time in his life, on his deathbed. Here is David. But we aren't going to have just David's words. We're going to have inspired words through David. David, the son of Jesse, said. Now this first verse is narrative. This is the holy penman, the man who wrote the books of First and Second Samuel, writing about David to introduce the character of the man and a little bit of his life. This is a tender eulogy about David before his words take up in verse 2. So we can see four things about David here. David, the son of Jesse, said. This morning I mentioned Boaz, his son Obed, his son Jesse, his son David. David is all, there's many Davids, but there's one, David, the son of Jesse. And David is often referred to as the son of Jesse. We don't know much about the character of Jesse. But we know that David came from a line of Boaz, Obed, Jesse, and was the man that he was, out there young and tender toward the Lord. And David was never ashamed to be known as David, the son of Jesse. Right. Never. And here we're reminded that he was the son of Jesse, which takes us back into that genealogy of Boaz and Obed. He was the man who was raised up on high. A lowly family. The family of Jesse the Bethlehemite? Low family. Where did David fit into the scheme of the low family? He was the last child. How would you like to be the eighth son of eight brothers? How would you like to be the last of eight brothers? Do you feel you'd be lost in the shuffle? David was last. He was lost in the shuffle. When Jesse gathered all of his sons together to see which one Samuel was going to anoint to be king, they overlooked David. It couldn't have been David. He's just the little snot out in the field with the sheep. He was overlooked. He was the lowest of a low family, but he was raised up on high. Do you know what the Lord says? I found you following the sheep. That's what the Lord says about him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He was a lowly shepherd keeping sheep from a low family and overlooked by much of his family. Now, does anyone in here feel overlooked and small and insignificant? That has nothing to do with your relationship with God. That's right. Because David was a man after God's own heart. David walked with God and God walked with David. God gave David his spirit 
from the day of his anointing till the day of his death. He was raised up on high. He was the anointed of the God of Jacob. God told Samuel, I want you to go to Bethlehem and anoint the next king. And Samuel was afraid of that, that little trip and that mission that God put him on because he knew that Saul would be very jealous to know that, that he was anointing a new king. But he came and anointed David to be the next king of Israel. He was anointed. Samuel poured that oil over his head in the presence of all his brethren. They had neglected to even bring him to the survey of the sons of Jesse. And, and Samuel went through all seven sons from the oldest to number seven. And there was not found a king for Israel among those seven brothers. And so Samuel said, is this all of your sons, Jesse? And Jesse said, well, there is another. He's keeping the sheep. And when he came in, he was a good-looking guy. He was a good-looking guy when he came in, and the Lord said to Samuel in his heart, this is the one. This is my man. Other men can despise him, but he is mine. You looked on Eliab, the oldest brother, and thought that for sure that was the Lord's anointed. This is my man. Don't you ever worry what other people think about you. Don't ever do that. Don't ever worry about where you are in the line of all your brothers and sisters. The Lord can bless you, and he will bless you if you'll humble yourself and seek his face. And the Lord blessed David and anointed him by the God of Jacob through Samuel. And he was the sweet psalmist of Israel. This is a eulogy about a man just before death. The man who wrote Samuel wrote this after his death. This is a record of the man David while he was alive. He was the son of Jesse. He was raised up on high. He was anointed by the God of Jacob, and he was the sweet psalmist of Israel. What a man. He could wrestle and kill lions and bears. He would boldly go out and take on the giant Goliath. He was a mighty man of valor and a mighty man of war. He took the city of Jebus, which became the city of Jerusalem. And you ought to read what he did to the Jebusites. But he was also the sweet psalmist of Israel. You know, there's an expression today about a well-rounded man. They're called a renaissance man. If there was ever a renaissance man, it was David. Right. David could not only kill his giants, but David was a sweet psalmist. David composed the poetry for the worship of God that was to be used under both testaments. David invented the musical instruments that were used to accompany the psalms under the Old Testament. Second Chronicles, Amos, both of those places tell us that David invented those musical instruments. David wrote the music for the worship of God by the use of those musical instruments accompanying the words that he wrote. Now, is that a pretty accomplished man? Then David set in order Asaph and all the singers and all the players and put them in their order and arranged them to make the music for the worship of God because David loved the worship of God. Can't you tell that by reading all the Psalms? He was the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Old Testament saints used his psalms, and the New Testament saints are to use his psalms for their worship. The book of James tells us, if you're, if you're happy, how should you rejoice? Sing psalms. Rejoice with the psalms. We're to sing songs, hymns, spiritual songs, and hymns and psalms. Those are the three kinds of music for a New Testament church. David was the sweet psalmist. He takes up speaking in verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. David didn't just give us his ideas 
on the worship of God when we read the Psalms. This verse is David de declaring, my writings, my poetry, my Psalms were given to me by inspiration with God in me and putting his words in my tongue. This reminds me of Psalm 45, where David begins the Psalm by saying, my heart is indicting a good manner. I speak of the things which I have made concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. The Lord was filling him with the wonderful expressions of Psalm 45 from his heart. The word indicting means dictating. God was dictating words and David was writing them down. And here's what he's declaring about the words that he wrote. When we read the Psalms, we're reading scripture. When we read scripture, we are reading the words of God. David wrote the words of God. Verse 3, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me. My close relationship with God, my, my familiarity with his way of speaking to me and inspiring my writings, God spoke to me and told me this, and it's in these words that I find all my peace and all my comfort. And here we go with those words, and on th with these words, he is able to die from here to the end of the seventh verse. God told me these things. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Now I hope at this point David's got our attention. Notice what he has said in verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me. His word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me. These are not my opinions. These are not my, these are not the result of my genius. This is, these are the Lord's words. The Lord gave me this message. And he tries to get our attention with the solemnity of verses 2 and 3a, where we have described for us that this all comes straight from God. And he begins to speak and he says, here's what the Lord told me. He that ruleth over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. The Lord God has purposed from the beginning to have a kingdom made up of men. He already had an angelic kingdom. Many of those angels fell, and he preserved some under the leadership of Michael, the archangel, and Gabriel, another angel. He preserved that those principalities and powers, but he has always purposed to have a kingdom of men, and the man that goes over that kingdom must be just ruling in the fear of God. And there's a lot in this, that little expression for us. This is advice from God to David for his son Solomon, for sure. But there's a whole lot more here than this. There would be no such solemnity, and nor would David say, this is all my salvation and all my desire, if it was just talking about some words of advice for Solomon. This is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are both here as there are several times when dealing with Solomon, the son of David. How many times did the Lord tell David, I'm going to raise up your son after you? 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89, and I'm going to establish him on your throne forever. And that was not Solomon, that was the Lord Jesus Christ. But God was with Solomon because God loved Solomon. But this, we want, we want to see both. David's a royal person. So when we deal with David, we've got to deal with God talking to a king. And so some of the emphasis is on the royal position that David held. But David's on his deathbed. 
He's no longer the mighty man of valor. He no longer was in bear wrestling or lion wrestling capacity or condition. He's wheezing his last. He's so weak, the Bible tells us, that they had to get him a young virgin named Abishag to come in and keep him warm because his own body couldn't preserve any heat. He was that weak. But with inspired words from the Holy Spirit, he has this to say to us, he that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. There's a lot in that for us. All rule, everyone in here, there's many rulers in here. We don't have kings any longer, but we have presidents and we have governors and senators and so forth. We have sheriffs and we have mayors. And every man that rules over other men should be just, ruling in the fear of God. The real measure of a man, if he's faithful to God, is his justice of his reign. The justice of his reign. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Every father should be a just father. To chase this for just a short moment in light of this morning's sermon. Every husband should be a just husband. Every master should be a just master. And every pastor had better be a just pastor. That means fair, equitable, and right in all their dealings. He that ruleth over men must be just. Is every man in here just with his children? Just with his wife? The Lord God is looking. David's going to tell us in just a few sentences, my house was not that way with God. David failed by being the leader that he should have been. He was a great one, but he wasn't like the Lord Jesus Christ. But every man in here ought to look in the mirror of that third verse, he that ruleth over men must be just. God did not give husbands submissive wives for those husbands to take advantage of them, for those husbands to be cruel to them or to be selfish with them. He gave those husbands to take care of them and to rule justly in their position of authority. He didn't give little tiny babies and young children that a father can dominate for a father to practice tyranny over them or to punish them too severely. He should, punish, he should be just in all of his dealings with them. And so there's wisdom in this. But we must pass on. We must pass on. This is wisdom for Solomon, but it's also a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there's only one man that has ever ruled justly at all times. One man who could rule in a matter where men, Pharisees, would bring a woman supposedly taken in adultery to accuse her. One man that could rule that situation with perfect justice in the fear of God, knowing he was being set up for a trap, knowing that they were more guilty than she was, knowing how to send them packing, with a simple writing in the sand and a simple question. He ruled over men justly. When they brought, when they came to him and tempted him about paying taxes to Caesar, trying to put him in a horrible predicament between the Roman government and the Jewish government, he ruled justly, didn't he? He was magnificent in his ruling. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And I hope that everyone, myself included, I have several offices. I hope that we will all look at this verse as men and humble ourselves before it because here's God telling us 
that we ought to rule justly, and that is to be fair at all times, equitable, giving what is appropriate for appropriate good things or bad things done, to be kind and to be right in everything that we do. David was not that way always. Solomon was not that way always. And neither were his other sons after Solomon. But God is telling him, he that ruleth over men must be just. David, I have to have a perfect ruler. I have to have a man that loves righteousness and hates iniquity. I have to have a man that fears me at all times to be the ruler over my people, to be the head of my kingdom. And so we have here a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ in these words, ruling in the fear of God, not ruling for political expediency, not ever doing something that might even be right because it's expedient, not ever doing something even though it might be right because it might be financially profitable, but doing what he does in the fear of God. That is a true ruler. All decisions being made toward wife, toward children, toward employees, toward church members, and toward citizens of a nation being done from the basis and foundation of the fear of God. That's the kind of man that must rule over men. And there's only one of them, brethren, and it's not David, and it's not Solomon, and it's not Rehoboam, and it's not Jeroboam, Zedekiah, Zerubbabel, or anyone else you want to think of. It's not Hezekiah or Josiah. It's not any of them. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And this is a prophecy of him. We all know that we fail. But I hope that we can look into the mirror of this verse and say, I don't want to fail as much anymore. Lord, help me to be a just ruler at all times in my spheres of authority. Let me not be a tyrant. Let me not be overbearing. Let me not be cruel or harsh. Let me be just. And let me always make my decisions in the fear of God. That isn't the boldness of God. That's the fear of God that God is watching if I ever oppress a child, oppress a wife, oppress a church member. God is watching because there is higher than the highest on earth. And that's the Lord. Verse 4 is a figure of speech. Verse 4 has two figures of speech in it. Let me read it to you. The first figure, and he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds. That is a simile, another simile today. We're having an English lesson. Here is a comparison being drawn. A great ruler that rules justly and in the fear of God is just like this picture. In the first half of the verse, the picture is a glorious sunrise where there are no clouds. And a, a sunrise is glorious. Amen. It's quite different than a sunset. A sunset is beautiful. And we had one this afternoon. And we had several this past week. But a sunrise chases away the darkness and the doom of night and invigorates and renews and is illustrious and glorious in its presentation. And so is a king that comes on the scene that rules justly in the fear of God. When there is a husband or a father or a pastor or a king or a master who rules justly in the fear of God, it is like the sun bursting forth on a clear morning where there, where there are no clouds because it is such a wonderful, renewing, encouraging, delightful, good thing to have a ruler that rules justly and in the fear of God. And so this fourth verse is from the Lord 
to David a figure of speech that to have such a man is to like have the sun driving away the gloom of night and bursting on the scene with all the light and guidance that the sunshine gives us for our lives. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ, my brethren. How many times you know that I would take the next half hour, do you know this, that it would take me the next half hour to trace through the Bible all of the statements that say, Arise, shine, for thy light is come. He was the life and the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He is the sun of righteousness. He is the bright and morning star. The day spring from on high hath visited us. How many times could I tell you that the Lord Jesus Christ is that great and glorious bursting forth of light on the darkness of this world. The Gentiles would see that light and they would flock to it as we are this very night because Jesus is the fulfillment of 4A. David was a great king. They sang their songs to David, but look at what David did from time to time. He cost 70,000 men their lives by numbering Israel. He shamed the gospel of Christ by his adultery and murder, didn't he? He had wicked sons. It was a horrible scene, but Jesus Christ was never like that. And when you look at that expression, it's a figure of speech, it's a simile, it's a comparison. To have a man that is truly just in his ruling, and he, does, he makes all of his decisions in the fear of God, that is like a beautiful sunrise without clouds. And the Lord Jesus Christ is like that. The Bible tells us that from the beginning to the end. You know the Bible tells me about heaven, that there is no need for a sun there, because the Lamb is the light of that place. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ is so perfect in all of his justice and in his fear of God, his love and his tender compassion toward all of his children, there is no need of a sun there. He is the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds. The Lord Jesus Christ, our bridegroom, is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Amen. Isn't he? Amen. Second simile in verse 4. As the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. If you've had a drought and the grass looks kind of dull and you haven't had to cut it for three weeks and the rain comes down in a proper rain, not one of these downpours for 20 minutes that runs into the gutter and doesn't do any good, but a good rain and then the sun comes out and with clear shining upon that ground, guess what happens? You're cutting in a few days because the grass springs out of the ground. Look at the words that are used. Grass, the tender grass springing out of the earth by the clear shining of the sun after rain. A king that rules justly in the fear of God is like that renewal and prosperity and luxury of grass springing into existence because of the combination of rain and sunshine, the two things we have to have, water and sunshine, and the result in the growth that you put in your cereal bowls in the morning or that you cut up if you cut up meat because the animals ate that stuff to get the meat for you to cut up in the morning. We need those two things. And a ruler that is just and who fears God is so prosperous to the people that are under him. They flourish. They grow. They're blessed. They enjoy all the riches 
of the benefits of having this benevolent, just ruler who rules in the fear of God. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at the prosperity that he's given saints throughout the history of the world that have put their trust in him and followed him. They have been blessed abundantly. Spiritual blessings, brethren, sometimes not so visible to the eye. But when a man, you say, what about the martyrs? I don't think that they were ever blessed. I don't think they ever saw the sunshine or ever felt the grass. Oh, you're wrong. I say they had the blessings more than we do. They could stand at that stake and not worry about a thing that they were leaving behind. Total confidence in the glory of the light that they saw. Stephen, to me, was seeing the bright sunshine quite well. And Stephen, to me, was enjoying the prosperity of the kingdom of Christ by his ability to answer all the questions of the Jews and to confound them, though he was but a deacon. The prosperity of Christ's kingdom, the wealth of the riches of the mercy of God that is with his saints, from a just ruler that rules in the fear of God, having a great leader. Every wife in here knows that sometimes her husband is not a just ruler. Every child in here knows that sometimes the father is not a just father ruling in the fear of God. But I want to tell you about one bridegroom and a father because he calls himself by both and he's also our master and he's the bishop of our souls and he is our king. Amen. He is just in all of his dealings with every one of us. Amen. You can always go to him and not only will you get a fair shake in your opinion, you'll get the fairest shake that heaven can offer because he is totally fair in all of his dealings with all of us. Right. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Tonight we come to this table to remember the covenant that he made before the world began with his Father in heaven, that he would come by covenant, the word of God would be made flesh and would die for us. And he now sits on the throne of David in heaven. It's not David's literal throne because it looks a whole lot better than that. But it's called David's throne because it's the throne over the kingdom of God. And he reigns on that throne forever. Verse 4 is a figure of speech. It's describing the great blessing of having a just ruler who fears God. It's like a beautiful sunrise without clouds. And it's like grass growing in, the, in prosperity after a nice rain with the clear shining of the sun. Every man who cuts grass knows what he's got to do if there's been a nice steady rain and then the sun comes out and shines brightly. You're going to have to cut the grass soon because it springs of the earth. The prosperity of Christ's kingdom is there described. Verse 5. Although my house be not so with God. David has said in 3b, the last half of verse 3, he that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. In light of that statement, David says, although my house be not so with God. I've already mentioned a couple of David's sins. Tremendous, heinous crimes against God. Crimes that cost life, all of them. What about his house? Look at David's children. Look at Amnon raped his sister, Absalom, tried to steal the kingdom, took David's concubines in public view to humiliate his father. Adonijah tried to steal the kingdom from David. Although my house be not so with God, I haven't ruled the way I should have ruled, and my children look horrible to be the kind of ruler that you're seeking God. 
my house is not so with God. And must we not, don't we all have to admit that we've all come short of the glory of God? We are all miserable failures if this is what it takes to be the ruler of God's kingdom and to be a member of his kingdom. We're failures and we're cut out if it's dependent upon us. Although my house be not so with God, in spite of the fact that my life has had within it huge failures that cut me out of ruling over men justly and always fearing God, David said, yet the Lord has made with me an everlasting covenant. Amen. And that covenant was no conditional covenant with David. David, if you'll do this, I'll give you eternal life. Right. This covenant was God saying to himself, we're going to do this and we're going to give eternal life to David. And not only are we going to give David eternal life, but we are going to raise up David's son to sit on his throne forever. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant. I have not fit this description of a true ruler over men. I have not always been just. I have not always ruled in the fear of God. But God has made with me, in spite of that, an everlasting covenant that my son will sit on his throne. And see, that came much earlier in his life, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Without turning there, do you remember the event? David was sitting comfortably in his house, and he was thinking, this house is so nice that I have. I'm so comfortable here. But God is still being worshipped in a tent. I need to change that. I'm going to build him a house. Go get Nathan the prophet. I'm going to build the Lord a house. It's not right for him to dwell in a tabernacle and me to live in a house. And Nathan came and said, the Lord never had an idea of having a house like this. He was content with a tent. All that I ever wrote to Moses, I never mentioned to anybody the possibility of building me a house. God loved David. If you've ever read 2 Samuel 7, you can see the love between God and David. David toward God and God's love back toward David. The Lord tells David, I never even thought of this before. I've never mentioned it before. Why would it enter your mind to think of something so honoring for me that you don't want me to live in a tent? But David, you've been a man of war all your life. You're not going to build me a house. I am going to build you a house. I dare you to ever try to outgive God. Amen. This is how it's worded in 2 Samuel 7. You will not build me a house. I will build you a house. I will raise up your son after you, and I will love him, and he will be my son, and I will be his father, and he will sit on your throne forever. And his kingdom will last forever. Now is that a glorious little trade with the Lord? David did it with a sincere heart. David wanted to build him a house. And when the Lord said, you can't build me a house, but I'll build you one, David said, okay, I'll just gather all the materials for it. And so David gathered for the rest of his life all the materials to build that magnificent temple that Solomon built. That is a man after God's own heart. You'll never outgive God. Never. You shovel it to him as fast as you can, and he'll shovel it back, but he's got a bigger shovel. Amen. And brethren, that is, that is trite compared to these words. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you one. Yeah. 
and he built him a house that included the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we come to the New Testament, all the way through the New Testament, we read about the house of David. We're still reading about the house of David a thousand years later because God has built his house up with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And do you know what? We're part of it. Did you know that in Acts chapter 15, when the big issue of the Gentiles was being discussed, and the prophecy was read from the Old Testament, that the tabernacle of David would be raised up again? Guess what that's referring to? We are part of the house of David, and his son sits on our throne as our king. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant. God, before the worlds began, made an everlasting covenant. I will send my son to die for all the citizens of my kingdom. They're my enemies now. Instead of destroying them, I could easily show my wrath and my power on all of them. I will save some of them and show my mercy. He made the promise. It went into force when he died. It didn't have to do with what David did. God made the promise. He promised eternal life before the world began. And it was conditioned upon the means of Jesus Christ dying for us, an everlasting covenant, a last will and testament that we would have the promises and all spiritual blessings by Jesus, the son of David, dying for us. God has made with me an everlasting covenant. My son will sit on the throne of God forever. That son will give his life a ransom for my sins. That son will save me from death, from sin, and from hell. And he says about that covenant, it's ordered in all things. The predestinating purpose of God, which we believe in this church, the sign outside our door says that we're predestinarians. That means God has ordered all the events, and he has especially ordered all these events. He wrote our names in the book of life before the world began. He assigned the work of redeeming them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he purposed that Mary would conceive a child without a man and bring forth as a virgin the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, she was a daughter of David. Go trace her genealogy. And throughout his life, every promise that was ever made about him was fulfilled. Even at the end when he had given up the ghost and they came to break the legs of those that were hanging on the crosses, to hasten their deaths so that they could take them down and bury them. No leg of his was broken because it was ordered in all things, brethren. It was ordered in every aspect. There is no one lost in his covenant. Amen. David could lay there on his deathbed and know, although, although I have many sins and although I never lived like the, the Lord told me, a man must live to, be to rule over men, to be just and always ruling in the fear of God. Although I have not done that, God's made with me an everlasting covenant and given me the Lord Jesus Christ to sit on my throne and to be my Savior, and to be my Lord forever. And it's ordered in all things. Jesus Christ could say, I will not lose one of them, because it was ordered in all things. No one will be lost that puts their trust in the Son of David. No one will ever cry, Thou Son of David, have mercy on me. Were those words ever spoken in your New Testaments? Did blind Bartimaeus cry out, Thou Son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd told him to shut up and to quit bothering the gathering. And what did he say? What did he do? He kept on crying out, 
O thou son of David, have mercy on me. And that son of David who always ruled justly and who has never turned any away that has ever come to him came over to blind Bartimaeus and gave him his sight. You love the Lord Jesus Christ who is the son of David and who has all things ordered in a covenant that is the basis for your salvation. Look what David went on to say. It's sure. What can happen to it? You know what the Bible says? You can just as soon overrule the covenants that I've made with the sun and the moon as you can overrule the covenant that I've made with myself that I'm going to be merciful to the house of Israel. Go ahead and try it. Try to overthrow the covenants of God. It's sure. I'm thankful for something that's sure. Very sure because it is resting on the surety, the Lord Jesus Christ. The sureness of our salvation is not on our faith. My faith is not very sure in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ. My works are not nearly as sure. But when I rest upon the surety who came and stood between me and God, then I have something sure. This covenant is ordered in all things from the holy council of the everlasting Jehovah, and it's ordered and it is sure. And David could say, this is all my salvation and all my desire. All my salvation. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name given under heaven, whereby men must be saved, but the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of David. Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Son to David, who on his deathbed he looked darkly with the eyes of faith and saw the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise that God had given him. And that is where we must lay claim tonight for the assurance of our own souls that we have an everlasting covenant that's been made for us and that we are the beneficiaries of it. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, if you see in him the son of David, if you believe he is the son of God, that covenant includes you. And you should by faith lay hold of him and look forward to celebrating his death for us. This is all my salvation and all my desire. The Lord Jesus Christ is called in the Bible the desire of all nations. All nations from the Garden of Eden since have looked for this Redeemer that had been promised to come to the devil himself that was going to come and deliver men. Even Jacob on his deathbed, when he got to the tribe of David in Genesis chapter 49, what do you think, who do you think he spoke of when he said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh come, and to him shall the gathering of the people be. My king Shiloh will come and gather all of my citizens and children together into the great kingdom of God, and he has done it. Jacob uttered those words about the tribe of Judah before he pulled his legs up into bed and gave up the ghost. His confidence was in the promised son of Judah. David's confidence was in the promised son of himself. It's all my salvation and all my desire although he make it not to grow. He hasn't included a blessing on all of my children. He hasn't included a blessing on all men. Look at my family. Look at Amnon. Look at Absalom. Look at Adonijah. He hasn't included them all. He hasn't made it to grow and include everything, but he's included me, and for that I'm thankful. And he has blessed me with a son who is also my Lord and who is also my Savior. Brethren, we are accused by the world, and we will accept 
the name of the doctrine called limited atonement. They say that we believe in a doctrine called limited atonement. And for their little minds, we will agree to the terminology that we believe in a limited atonement. But they are the only ones that limit the atonement. The atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, is, only limit, is limited to his elect. But it's not limited in its power. It is ordered in all things and sure, and it's, a, it's the result of a covenant, and it certainly saves everyone for which that death was offered. They limit it because it doesn't accomplish the salvation of any. They say we believe in unlimited atonement. Really? How many will it save by itself? Well, not anyone. He made it possible for men to save themselves. They limit the atonement. They spread it broadcast to everyone, but it doesn't save anyone. We limit it to the elect because the Bible does, because they're the beneficiaries of the covenant. But it infallibly saves all of them. Now, that is not a limited atonement to me because it is unlimited in its power and it certainly saves every single one. They are the ones that have an atonement that saves no one. They must save themselves by doing something that their fellow man does not do. And the difference between heaven and hell is something they have done, not something the Lord Jesus Christ has done. The difference between heaven and hell for us the difference between the vessels of wrath and the vessels of mercy is entirely what Jesus Christ has done. And David said, although my house, there is nothing I can do, yet God hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. I am dying, and I have not lived up to the charge of being a perfect ruler over God's kingdom. My sons have been worse. And what I see by the Lord showing me the future, they're not going to get any better. Except one in the very distant future, I can see that God is going to put on my throne. And not only will he be my son, ruling over the kingdom of God, but he will be my savior as well. This is all my salvation and all my desire. And that's how he was able to die. But I want to tell you something, brethren. Jesus of Nazareth sitting on the throne of God is, all not, is not all good news. It's good news for us. Right. It is not good news for the wicked. And so David has two more verses to mention. When my son, I was not able to get rid of all the sons of Belial in my kingdom. Do you know that David heard the message that Doeg the Edomite came to Nahab and killed Ahimelech the high priest and all of his sons and, and their wives and their children and slaughtered the city of Nob with the edge of the sword. He heard that. He wrote Psalm 52, which some of you read last evening, about that horrible event. He knew sons of Belial all his life. They were around him at the end. Some of them were his own relatives. Some of them were his nephews. And he was never able to rid the kingdom of all the sons of Belial. But he knew that there was a son coming that was going to rid the kingdom of every one. And brethren, when we get to heaven, there's going to be no strange children there. Amen. All the fools and scorners and all the sons of Belial will be blotted out. Now we have another simile. Here we go in verses 6 and 7. 
but the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns. Remember that word as, or the word like? When you've got that, you've got a simile. So here David is describing all these wicked men as being thorns. But the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away. Now follow, think about thorns when you've had to go out and clean up a bunch of thorns. They shall be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. You've got to push them away so that they don't grab you by your hands. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear. Fenced here means protected. That's all it means. You put up a fence. What you're thinking of as a fence is to protect property. But the man must be fenced. He must be covered with something and protected so that the thorns can't grab him. It's a simple figure of speech. If you're trying to get rid of thorns, you get something that's made of iron, and you have a long pole on it, like a spear, and you push them away because you can't get close to them like ordinary wood that you can pick up with your hands and throw in a fire. Sons of Belial are worse than just your average vessel of wrath. Have you ever used a rake to push away thorns? Is it on the end of a spear and is it iron? Isn't that beautiful? Can you understand the, the figure of speech here? You push them away and you don't bother hauling them very far. You burn them in their place. That's what the two verses say. Verses 6 and 7 are describing how we deal with thorns. They must be pushed away so that they cannot take, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that touches them must be fenced, protected with iron, and the staff of a spear, a long pole, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. And that is what the sons of Belial are like. They are dangerous. They are wicked. They are deceitful. And when you get near them, when you can't see it, you reach in, thinking that you're going to get a clear grasp on a thorn, on a, on a, on a trunk of a thorn branch, to where you'll be able to get it out of your way, and lo and behold, it comes and grabs your arm anyway. Anybody ever do that? Have you done it more than once? They're very difficult to deal with. You've got to have something of iron and a long pole and push them away and just burn them up. This is David in his deathbed. Yes, he's still the sweet psalmist of Israel, but he's talking about the sons of Belial, and David is thankful that there's finally going to be a king who can get rid of all of them and he will get rid of all of them. Yeah. There was a time where Nebuchadnezzar marched with an army out of the Chaldeans, out of Chaldea, to Jerusalem and besieged the city and leveled it. And he burned up the thorns, the sons of Belial, in that place. Right. But brethren, there were some real sons of Belial who took our Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, yeah. and nailed him to a cross misrepresented him at a trial, falsely accused him, and hung him on the cross. And while they were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, let his blood be on us and on our children, I want to tell you something about the son of David. The son of David is a victorious conqueror. The son of David is able to take the city of Jerusalem. And the son of David took the city of Jerusalem because he came with his armies in 70 AD under Titus Caesar and burned up that city. He burned them in their place. All those wicked men that had stood against him resisted all the miracles that he performed on that nation, the pure truth that he taught, and the pure testimony that he gave on trial. 
But he told Caiaphas at that trial, you're going to see me coming on the right hand of power. And he came on the right hand of power and burned up the sons of Belial. Brethren, there is a difference in the world, and the difference in the world is your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And I hope tonight that everyone in here, young and old, wants to fall before the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the son of David. That is his title, and he is not ashamed of it. He rules on the throne of David over the kingdom of God, and all the kings of this earth are his servants. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the prince of the kings of the earth. He is the blessed and only potentate. He is David's son, and he is David's lord. And he's our savior, and he's our lord. And you must fall before him and repent of your sins and swear full and total allegiance to him if you want to lay hold of eternal life tonight as we come to his table. Be thankful that he has put in your heart the desire to humble yourself before him. Amen. Be thankful that he has brought you the message that he is king. Right. Be thankful that we can come to a table where this king, who will utterly burn the sons of Belial up with fire, died so that his enemies could be his citizens, his children, and his bride. That is unbelievable. That king, to make a kingdom fit for himself, so that he could truly show the benevolence of a king. Do you know sometimes a king, to show benevolence, will reduce taxes? Our king, to show benevolence in our country, has sent all those parents with children of a certain age a tax credit in advance. That's benevolence. We're thankful for it when we get it in the mail, when we cash it and we're able to spend it. But I want to tell you about a king. I want to tell you about a king who wanted to show how merciful he was how full and great his love was, he died for his enemies to make them his citizens. And then he sent his spirit to change their hearts so that we would want to swear allegiance to him. Right. Then he sent his ambassadors to tell them, the victory is won, death has no more power over you, I will deliver you from it, you're going to live with me forever in heaven, I get to bring the message, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ tonight? He is a magnificent Savior. Amen. He is superior to David in every way. I would much rather have what the son of David gives than to have the flagon of wine and a good piece of meat that David gave to all the nation of Israel. Right. What is your choice? Amen. Brethren, tonight we come to a table to celebrate the son of David. David's entire confidence was in him. Is your confidence in him? Amen. David sinned, but it did, did it take away his confidence? No because his confidence rested on the performance of his son. Our confidence does not rest on our performance, but the performance of his son. Brethren, do you have faith tonight? David believed that a distant son of his would be the son of God. Now that's a lot of faith. All you have to believe is that you're the son of God through Jesus Christ. You live on this side of Christ. Right. He has come and died 2,000 years ago. You have the record of it. Mm -hmm. David had to look forward and believe that, that son was going to come out of his own loins, was going to come through that horrible family that he had. Now that's a lot of faith. And look at him. It's ordered in all things and sure, and it's all my salvation and all my desire. Do you have enough faith to believe tonight that the man Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate in the year 30 A.D., outside the city walls of Jerusalem, is the son of David and the son of God, the Lord of this universe, 
And do you swear allegiance to him and humble yourself before him and believe that he is the son of God and your only hope of deliverance from sin, death, and condemnation? That is what you ought to do. And that just takes a little bit of faith that God gives to all of his citizens by his own power. Do you believe him tonight? Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant. Do you know how the Lord Jesus Christ ends the book of Revelation? I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. You want to talk about a sunrise. There's one coming, brethren. Do you know what it says? It says, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate. There's going to be a sunrise like you have never, ever seen. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. Do you know how bright the light is? Now coming, coming west on 85 tonight to get to this meeting place, the sun was so bright the traffic slowed to a very slowed greatly to just a slow crawl coming up over a a rise in the road because the brilliant ball of fire was right in our eyes and you could not see what was in front of you. Mm -hmm. But I want to tell you something brighter than that's coming because the Bible tells me he dwells in a light that no man can approach unto. There's no need for the sun in that place because our lamb, the son of David, is the light of it. Love him tonight. Humble yourself before him. You know what he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's how you can know. Lay hold of eternal life this very night as we come to his table.